morning, church. Would you please stand with us? And let us worship and celebrate how good it is to be together. Good morning. My name is Jane Hoffmeyer, and this is my husband, Darren. Newcastle has been our church home for the past 29 years. It's our privilege to co-lead the hospitality team with Lisa and Steve Galbraith. We recently began leading a life group of young married couples and are on a GoPartner support team. Additionally, I enjoy being one of the teachers for Women's Bible Study. This morning, we want to welcome you to Newcastle Bible mm -hmm. Church. 
If you are a visitor here, we extend a special welcome to you. After the service, we'd invite you to stop by this welcome desk that's located in the North Commons. We have a small gift for you, as well as information about the church that we think you'll find very helpful. We'd also appreciate it if you'd fill out the checking card found in the worship folder and drop it in the front slot of one of the tables located at either entrance of the worship center. You can also download the Church Center app and check in there if you find that to be more convenient. Again, welcome to Newcastle Bible Church. We're so glad you're here and we hope you enjoy the morning. I concur with that video. We are really glad that you're all here and I hope that you all believe the song that you just sang. How, oh, how good it is to be here together, the family of God. And if you don't feel that way, I hope and pray that by the time you leave, as you're going home in the car, that you go, man, oh, how good it was to be there this morning. We're really glad that you're here, and we do want to give you a little heads up about something awesome happening next Sunday. Next Sunday is the Great Mission Bake, okay? So the fifth and sixth grade Awana girls are putting on a giant bake sale, and it is going to be so good. Not good for you, but it's going to be good. And so I'd encourage you to bring, they take checks and cash, like cash in the forms of like stacks of a hundreds or a briefcase of money, like that'd be great. Because the money is not just for the kids, they're raising the money for our global outreach partners, the Camiolas. And so the money that goes to the, the baked goods will go to them as they minister in the, for, the, for the group they have that called Grace Gardens where they take women and children out of human trafficking and abuse situations and provide a safe place for them to learn more about Christ. So what a great cause and what a great way to be, to be a blessing and to bless your tummy um, to next week. So come prepared for that. But before we continue praising through song, would you please pray with me right now? Jesus, it is good to be here because we are savoring and celebrating your gloriousness together. And I pray that no matter how anybody in this room feels at this moment, whether people are feeling exuberant and joyful, or whether they're struggling to be awake, or whether they're struggling with just the, the, the hectic week they've had, or the trials and tribulations, I pray that despite all of that, they can affirm the truthfulness of how good you are and how wonderful you are, how glorious you are. Because that is worship. Worship is not just feeling bubbly inside. It is humbling ourselves before you and ascribing the glory that you are due. So I pray that you would bless this time together as we sing, as we pray together, and as we sit under the teaching of your word together. I just pray that you would continue to transform us so that we can see your glory more and more each and every day. Rest this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand with us as we sing about our glorious Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.
Your power is unequal. Your love beyond all heights. No greater sacrifice than when you made down your life. Rejoin the song of angels who praise you day and night. Glorious Christ.
morning. Children ages three through kindergarten can be dismissed for Children's Church. Just uh, head out the back door, follow the crowd. Let's pray together. Heavenly, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we turn to you this morning to praise you and your holy name. There's no one like you. Your faithfulness to us is far beyond anything we can imagine. Your beauty, your glory, your majesty are all so far above our finite understanding. So is your grace and your mercy that you would send your only son to be a sacrifice for our sins, again, beyond what we can comprehend. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself a ransom for our sins. You who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. Again, we just thank you, Jesus. Help us to show our appreciation by living for you. We want to pray this morning for our partner church, Liberty Bible Church, and Pastor Tom Zobrist in Eureka. We ask that you bless our ministry, their worship, and teaching this morning. May they be encouraged to worship and live for you. And Father, we also want to live up our global outreach partners, Dustin and Becca King. Thank you that they are able to settle into their new home. Thank you for providing it. We ask that you be with Dustin as he seeks, secure, seeks to secure reliable transportation for them. We also pray for the Surro Church needing funding to replace their restrooms. Please provide the funding they need. We know you will. And dear God, we just pray for Newcastle this morning. We are asking, we are begging you to lead us. We pray that we could continue to be united in you. Please lead us. We are trusting you. And we just want to lift up Pastor Kevin and Jody and ask you to bless them. Father, we praise you now that more than 80 years ago, men prayed that there could be a church on this very spot. You are answering that prayer today and every day. You, Jesus, are building your church. Please help us to follow your leading. And Father, now as we turn to reading and studying your word. Help us to open our hearts to you. Help us to be teachable to apply what we learn. And please be with Pastor Tyson as he teaches us this morning. Give him the freedom to teach what you have laid on his heart. And we just want to thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself for us. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us in the singing of Speak, O Lord, a prayer perfect for this time. Speak, O oh Lord, as we come to you to receive the fruit of your holy word. Take your truth. 
song and it is a it is a joy to hear y'all singing it with some gusto uh, at, while I was standing there in the front. Well this morning we are going to be finishing up our series through the book of Ephesians. It has finally come, the end has come and it's been an amazing 28 week or 29 week if you count today, a journey that God has used to shape and fashion us individually, but also as a church. And for that reason, it's kind of sad that we're at the end. It's, uh, it's kind of like when you finish a really good book, a favorite book of yours, and you get to the end, you're like, oh, I wish it would keep going. Like when I finished the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I'm like, oh, it's so sad that this is the end. Pretend not to tear up at the end of the movies when you see the end of the, when Frodo leaves off the shore. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you today, we would love to provide, one with, uh, provide you with one this morning. Our ushers are going to walk down the aisle. All you have to do is raise your hand. They'd love to give you one to use today um, or even to keep if you do not have your own. Starting next week... We will start a new preaching series by simply turning the, to the next page in your Bible, literally the next verse in Philippians. And that's not just a choice out of laziness. Uh, we really believe that the truths contained in Philippians are really pertinent and will be especially beneficial to our souls during this season and our church and it'll produce great growth and great joy in us as we study that. So really looking forward to diving into that uh, book next week. Uh, 
But the themes that run through Ephesians have been uh, strategically chosen as we emerged from COVID lockdown era, and it has been really beneficial for us as a church because it's helped us realign our hearts with God's design for the church and what our individual responsibilities are in that church. It's helped us understand the profound reality that we have all been united together in Christ by grace in order to live in love together for the glory of God. In other words, we're not saved just to be saved. We're not saved to just have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. We're saved for all of those reasons, but we are saved and united together We are knitted supernaturally together in Christ. We are his body. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Ephesians has directed our focus onto God's glory through two major sections. The first three chapters of Ephesians really proclaim the goodness of God and salvation and his glory. It tells us about all the things he has done for us and blessed us with. And then chapters four through six, the last three chapters, tell us how we ought to live in light of those promises. As Paul would say, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel calling we have received. And now, we're going to look at the conclusion of this monumental letter. So, if you would, if you're able, please stand in honor of the reading of scripture and follow along as I read Paul's concluding words in Ephesians chapter six. Verses 21 through 24. Paul writes, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, my prayer is simply that which we just sang, that you would continue to transform our hearts and renew our minds through your word, that you would plant your word deep in us, that you would cause it to bear fruit, that you would cause us to grow as a body of Christ so that we might bring glory to you. We can't do it apart from you. We have no strength. We are in desperate, humble dependence upon you. As we pray that you would be honored and glorified as you continue to make us more like your son. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It can be really easy to gloss over a small little passage at the end of a book like this. Uh, You can uh, quickly look at it and be like, oh, hey, look, there's another name of a guy that's hard to pronounce, and this is Paul saying the end. That's great. And there's a lot of other passages in the Bible that we come across that we struggle to see the relevance, we struggle to see the application or the meaning in it, and it can make it hard to read. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Genealogies. You get to them in Genesis 5 or when you come across them in the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles and you got this long list of names that are near impossible to pronounce. 
or when you come across uh, the land allotments for Israel in, num- in the book of Numbers, or when you read through the very detailed descriptions and construction accounts of the tabernacle tent, the temple, the millennial temple, all of these things, you come across 613 commandments and the old covenant law, and you're reading through those and you just, the meaning and the application is just not readily apparent. It's not just jumping out at you. In those moments, as we're reading in our own personal study, it's tempting to think that those passages don't have anything meaningful to contribute to our lives. But it's important to remember that all of Scripture, all of God's Word, is profitable. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is purposely, purposefully put there by God. There is no subject, there is no verb, there is no direct object, there's no preposition, there's no adverb, there's no adjective, there's no predicate nominative, there's no whatever part of speech you want to use. There is nothing that is extraneous or superfluous. It is all purposely put there by God for a reason. Now, as a student, you may have tried to add fluff to your essays in order to reach the page limit for your teacher. But there's no fluff in God's word. It is all precisely put there for us. That's amazing. As we approach the closing verses of Ephesians, we should have this same conviction in mind, even when it's not, when the truth isn't apparent, that this is God's word and it is profitable. And so we need to dig deep into it, into the mine shaft of God's word to pull out the jewels, the precious jewels of his word. At first glance, Paul's closing words seem to just be a formality, a normal and courteous way of concluding a letter. But based on everything that's preceded, Everything that's come before these verses, there's much, much, much more going on here. Ephesians is a tremendously rich book. I don't think anybody would deny that. We've walked through some really deep theology. We've waded into the deep end of the swimming pool together. And it's stirred our hearts to praise. It has magnified our view of God. We've been challenged by the commandments to, that exhort our hearts to obey God in light of the grace we've been given. And recently, we have been sobered by the reality of spiritual warfare that occurs daily, 24-7, on a daily basis, all year long, between God's people and demonic forces, and that we need to be engaged in that war. So how do you end a letter of such magnitude? I mean, you can't just end it, right, with saying, hey guys, watch out for Satan, be on guard, pray for me while I'm in prison, Sincerely, Paul. And this is kind of like a big, let, that'd be a big letdown. And that's not how Paul ends it at all. See, Paul ends the letter with much more substance because he knows the spiritual danger that the Ephesian church is facing and he wants to shepherd them through it. What danger is that? Well, the attacks from the satanic forces mentioned in the previous verses. But those satanic forces, when they attack, they tempt believers to disunity and discouragement to the point that left unguarded, believers can become a casualty to spiritual warfare. In light of all this, 
Paul pastorally leaves the Ephesian church with some significant parting words. He wants them to be encouraged to persevere, and he, get, he, he helps us through God's parting gifts. These parting words are actually gifts from God intended to help preserve all the lessons he's taught in Ephesians. Preserve those lessons in their hearts and in their minds so that they can stand firm in the faith. So as we conclude our time in Ephesians, these parting gifts are not just necessary for the church, but they're also necessary for us. This is the main point. God gives gifts to his people to preserve their unity and faith in the midst of spiritual warfare. Through these parting gifts, we are strengthened and equipped to not just be hearers of the word, not just hearers of Ephesians, but doers of the word. So let's look at the first parting gift. The first parting gift from God is encouragement. Look at verses 21 through 22. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul follows up his prison prayer request from verse 20 with a dose of encouragement, knowing that the church would be anxious to know how he's doing. He didn't want to write out a really long personal report because this letter was most likely written on papyrus, which was not plentiful, nor was it cheap, like going to Staples and buying a ream of copy paper is today. So why did the church need this, com- this encouragement? What was tipping, uh, what was cueing the, the spidey sense, the pastoral sense of Paul? Well, someone who is preoccupied with discouragement and anxiety is in no good frame of mind to focus on the more important and spiritually strengthening promises of God. This is Biblical Counseling 101. When we meet with someone who's in a crisis, we must always give biblical hope first to help prevent paralyzing despair. So that's what Paul's doing. He wants to encourage them in two ways, through a message on how he is doing and through the messenger giving the update. And what better person to give the update than a man from their very own region named Tychicus, who Paul commends as a beloved brother and a faithful minister to the Lord. Tychicus is mentioned five times in the Bible. All of them are really short, uh, short references, but we learn a lot just from those five mentions. First of all, as I mentioned, Tychicus is from Asia, which is modern-day Turkey to us, but it's the area where the church at Ephesus and Colossae were located. We don't know which church Tychicus was from, but we do know that he went with Paul at the end of his third missionary journey to Jerusalem to deliver all of the offerings of the churches to the saints who were suffering in Jerusalem. Tychicus did this as a representative of the churches in Asia. So there you see uh, an example of humble sacrificial service where he's like, hey, I'll, I'm willing to travel. I'm willing to go to Jerusalem to help out with this. And it's a testimony to his faithfulness that the churches said, okay, we'll let you go for us. Not too long after their time in Jerusalem, we know Paul was taken captive and put in prison. And for about two years, he resided in Caesarea before he finally got to appeal to Caesar. And then he was shipped off to Rome to st- uh, to while, where he waited to stand trial before the Roman emperor. And another testimony to Tychicus' faithfulness is that he traveled to Rome 
to be with Paul and to minister to him. It was a difficult, man, traveling in the New Testament era was difficult. It didn't matter where you were going, but let alone Rome, that was rough. It was a difficult mixture of walking and sailing huge distances while you were vulnerable to threats of weather, wild animals, and criminals. Yet, despite making that initial trip to Rome, Tychicus was still ready to serve in any way Paul asked. He ministered to Paul while he was in prison. And then one day, Paul says to him, Tychicus, can you do something for me? Tychicus is like, yeah, absolutely, anything. What do you want? Can you go back to Asia? (laughs) Can you travel 1,700 miles again to deliver some letters to the church? And Tychicus obviously says, you bet, you bet. There was no FaceTime at the time. There was no Zoom, no post office, no Pony Express. So if you wanted to communicate, you had to send a messenger. Tychicus was so faithful in ministry that Paul even entrusted him to be the pastor at the church of Ephesus for a short time so that Timothy could go visit Paul in jail. He also recommended that Tychicus be the pastor in Crete so that Titus could go visit Paul. Tychicus was a faithful man. He's also a faithful nobody, just a faithful footnote in the Bible. But despite this lack of notoriety, Tychicus was going to encourage the hearts of these believers as an example of faithful service, as a primary witness to what God was doing, and by giving them a report on how Paul and his companions were doing. The kind of equivalent for us to this would be like when we get an update from our global outreach partners. It's one thing to get an email from them. That's good and great. We, we need that. But it's a whole other thing if, they're, if we're able to bring them here, see them face to face, hear them give a report about the ministry that's going on, hear about the th- ways God's been working in their lives and through their suffering and through their hardships, and to tell us how we can pray for them, how we can help minister with them. Now, when Paul gives this report to the church. This isn't a pity report. We know that because in verse 20, when he asks for prayer, he doesn't say, would you guys pray for for my wrists? They're really sore from these shackles I've been wearing. Would Would you pray that God would help get me out of prison? No, he says, will you pray that I'll get to share the gospel while I'm here? So we know Paul has his right frame of mind because he, he in an example we see of this, I, be, I believe Tychicus would give an update very similar to what Paul does in Philippians chapter one. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, so Paul's encouragement would be to shepherd the church to not be afraid of suffering, but to see it as a part of God's plan in saving lost sinners. He says in that passage of Philippians, he's like, hey, don't worry about what's happened to me. Look how God's using it to advance the gospel. Look at all these imperial guards who are heathens, who are pagans, and look, God's using it to save them. And not only them, all the believers here in Rome, they are emboldened to share the gospel because of what's happening to me. So don't worry about me, God's in control. That's an encouragement. 
God, does, God gives us this kind of encouragement through other believers today too, in our own church and outside the church. In 1967, Johnny Erickson Tata was tragically paralyzed after a diving accident at the age of 17 years old. She was no longer able to use her arms or her legs, and she struggled with hopelessness, depression, and even suicide for two years. But over time, God helped her to endure her suffering with joy and that turned into a ministry of uh, gospel ministry to other people with disabilities. Her reach through her books and through her ministry has had a significant impact, not just on people with disabilities, but even fellow believers as they look to her and how she has suffered well with joy for God's glory. Examples like Paul and Johnny Exentata encourage us to persevere in the faith when we are engaged in our own spiritual battles. When you're engaged in your own spiritual battle, it's easy to become myopic, to see this far in front of your face and to say, woe is me, look at this suffering. But when we see the suffering examples of other people who are enduring it well, it helps us see the bigger picture. It helps us embrace what God is doing in and through us. And then when we do that, we shouldn't be surprised when God uses our own suffering to encourage other people in the church. That's the encouragement God gives to the church at Ephesus. That's the encouragement God gives to us as well. But that's not the only gift God gives. In the last two verses of this book, Paul delivers three more of God's final parting gifts through a benediction. So in verse 23, we find that God gives us the gift of peace. Verse 23 says this, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is a benediction? A benediction is simply a public prayer where blessings are asked for, for the corporate body going forward into the future, but also at the same time, it's a giving of thanks for blessings enjoyed in the present. There's a mixture of thankfulness and dependency in a benediction. So Paul's first prayerful desire for the church is peace. He says, peace to the brothers. He's not asking for peace as if it's a liquid volume of measurement. It's not as if the church is a quart low on peace and he's asking God to top them off. Can you just fill them up a little bit more? God is not withholding any of his peace from you and waiting for you to politely ask and then, oh, okay, here's some more. Now, see, God has already poured out his infinite peace in your life now. So Paul's prayer is that believers would better understand the peace that we have been given from God and that we would be committed to living in light of that peace. But what kind of peace are we talking about? Inner peace, peace in the midst of suffering, peace with God, peace with each other. The answer is yes, all of the above. But it's important to note that peace with God is the foundation for peace in all other circumstances. Another way to say that is if you don't have peace with God, you will not have peace in other circumstances. That's why Paul points to the church, to the source of peace at the end of the verse. Peace be to the brothers from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of peace is not in yourself. It's not in anybody else. It's not in the absence of conflict. It is in God. This is one of the major themes that runs throughout Ephesians. The glorious truth that we can have peace 
with God. Paul begins his letter in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2 with this opening salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. After that, he goes on to highlight our peace with God seven other times throughout the letter. So what does it mean to have peace with God? Well, Paul, Paul perfectly explains it in Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Peace means that we are reconciled with God. We don't have any more hostility. That we have a restored, friendly relationship with God. Why did we need reconciliation? Because we were sinners who rebelled against God. We were not neutral towards him. We were not apathetic about him. We were hostile. We hated him. We wanted to be the boss So we broke God's law, and that broken law became a dividing wall that separated our wretchedness from his holiness. We were far from him, and we didn't want anything to do with him. But the hostility didn't just go one way. It went both ways, because we were the targets of his just wrath because of our sin. So how did we get this peace? The text says, The blood of Christ. His death on the cross both satisfied God's justice and demonstrated his love. Jesus then supernaturally united us with himself, giving us a new identity so that we might have the same close relationship with God that Jesus enjoys. Paul wants all believers to grow in their understanding of this peace. And he also wants us to be committed to living in light of it. So what that means is there's a proportionate relationship to your knowledge about God's peace and your ability to live at peace with other people. Another way to say it is that God's peace produces peacemakers. So then you have to ask yourself the question, are you characterized as a peacemaker or a peace faker? When conflict arises in your life, in your marriage, with your children, with people in the church, co-workers, do you flee and avoid the problem? Do you feign peace? Do you sweep sin under the rug? Or are you on the opposite side of the spectrum? Do you simmer in bitterness like a crockpot of anger? Or... Do you dig your heels in and fight and erupt like a volcano? Or do you seek to be a peacemaker as God has called us to? How do you make peace? How do you be a peacemaker? I think there's four ways. Four ways that you can do it. First is to be humble. Seek humility. You can't make yourself humble. Only God can do that. Seek humility by meditating on the great debt that was paid for your forgiveness. 
the 10,000 talent debt that you were forgiven compared to the 100 denarii debt of somebody else. That's the first thing. Humble yourself. Seek humility. And forgive others. That's the second thing. Forgive others as you have been forgiven. Extend forgiveness just as freely as you've received it from Christ. The third thing is to ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness from those whom you've sinned against. Humble yourself. Repent. And finally, confess your own sins to the Lord and repent regularly. None of us are perfect peacemakers, but these steps should be the pattern of our life. They should be the goal of our hearts. If you struggle to be at peace, if you struggle with having peace in your heart, the first question you might have to ask yourself is if you have peace with God to begin with. If you've never been at peace with God, there's great hope. Today's the day. You can repent and confess your sins to him and have peace right now. But even if you have already experienced God's peace, we still know that when sin creeps into our lives, it disrupts the peace temporarily that we have with God and with others until we put that sin to death. Sin is the ultimate enemy of peace. So we have to put our pride to death by thinking rightly about God and his holiness. And when you think rightly about God and his holiness, it helps you see your sin for what it is, a giant plank of wood sticking out of your eye that makes everyone else's sin looks like a speck of sawdust in comparison. We have to kill all bitterness and anger so that it does not kill us. Knowing God's peace and committing to it is the foundation of unity in the church. But there's another gift that we need in addition to peace that is critical for fueling our peacemaking. That gift is love. Second half of verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's second prayerful desire for the church is love with faith. This is what energizes a believer to make peace with others. It's what energized God to make peace with us. And just like peace, we find the source of love in God. God's love for us is the foundation for our love with others. Paul talks about love 14 times throughout the letter of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, Paul describes love this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He describes God's love even more in chapter two, verses four through five. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. What motivated God to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? What motivated God to choose to save us before the world was even created? What motivated him to adopt us for his glory? What motivated him to save us and make us alive together with Christ? His love. 
So what is love? What is it? We get told what love is a lot by the world, the music you listen to, Hollywood books. But I tell you this, love is not what Hollywood says it is. It's not an emotion. It's not a sentiment. It's not something you can fall in and out of. Love defined by the Bible is a supernatural action. 1 John 4.10 gives us one of the most succinct definitions of love. It says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Based on this verse, I think we can define love this way. It's the act of sacrificing yourself for the benefit of someone else, regardless of their merit. You could even add it's a supernatural act. It's giving up your desires, comfort, and your very self, despite how you feel and whether or not someone deserves it, for that person's good. Jesus manifested this love, God's supernatural love, by humbly serving others and sacrificing his life. That's the love we have already received in full, infinite, great love of God. And that's the love that we are called to reflect in our own lives. John tells us in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. God's gift of love enables, through the Spirit, enables us to supernaturally love fellow believers and even our enemies with the same love Christ has shown to us. So where does faith fit in with love, right? Paul says faith, love with faith. So it's not, faith isn't a standalone gift in this list. It's not love and faith, it's love with faith. The word with tells us that these two are interwoven together and share a strong connection. It means that love is the product of genuine saving faith. If you have faith, it will be evident through your love. Jesus made this connection in John 13 and 14. He said that the world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandment. What commandment had he just given? That you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, if you say you have faith, it will be evident through your deeds of love toward other believers. James 2 tells us that genuine faith, the kind that saves, produces acts of love. If you don't have love, then you don't have saving faith. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not a genuine faith. It's not a saving faith. It's not a life-giving faith. It's a dead-giving faith. So, are you known as a loving person? Paul said that he had heard a good report of the Ephesians' faith and love toward all the saints, and it caused him to give thanks. Is your love notable enough to be noticed by others and a cause for thanksgiving? Do you give yourself sacrificially to others, not just when it's easy or convenient, not just to your family and friends, people who are comfortable to be around, people who reciprocate your love, who give back to you, but to people who don't even treat you nicely? To people who don't pat you on the back. See, God displayed his love towards those kind of people. Jesus loved those who hated him. He loved to the point of death for his enemies. Do you love others who are hard to love? Can you think of people who are hard to love 
and think about whether or not you're loving them? Do you love those who have sinned against you? Do you want what's good and best for those who have sinned against you? Jesus calls us to this supernatural standard of love. So how can you love others like Christ? I think the first way you can do it, and we mentioned it just earlier, is by forgiving others. By us being together in a church, we are not sitting in here saying, we are a collection of perfectly holy people. There's no conflict going on in here. No. No. You know, you've probably heard the, uh, the, the refrain from people before, I don't go to church because a bunch of hypocrites. Well, you could join us because, yeah, we are a bunch of hypocrites and you're one too. <laughs> We're not perfect people. We sin against each other. We have conflict. That's just going to happen on this side of heaven. So how do you love people when you're going to be in conflict with them? You forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And on the other side, you ask for forgiveness when you sin against people. Those are the first two things you can do. Extend forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. And the third way is by humbly viewing others more important than yourself so that you will serve them just as Christ served you. To love others, you must first love Jesus. If you do not love others, you have to ask yourself if you love Jesus. The one who professes to love Jesus but hates his brother is a liar, 1 John tells us. If you told me that you liked me, Tyson, you're a great guy, I like you, but I don't really like your wife. Like, can we hang out and maybe you leave her at home? I'd be pretty upset. This is the same way Jesus feels if we say, Jesus, I love you. I don't really like the people in your church. Right? Ephesians 5 says that the church is his bride. So it's like, Jesus, I love you, but I hate your wife. It's pretty offensive. Without love, there is no peace. Without peace, there is no unity in the body. And as Paul said in Ephesians, it is in love that the body of Christ is built up and in which believers are rooted and grounded. So where there is Christ-like love, there is Christ-like peace. But there's one last final gift that God gives, one last gift that is essential for the church, and that is grace. Verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul concludes his benediction by prayerfully asking for God's grace. What is grace? We talk about it a lot in church circles, right? It's a Christianese word that we talk about. We sing about it. But what is it and what's so amazing about it? God's grace is his great kindness sovereignly shown towards those who don't deserve it. God's great kindness sovereignly, meaning he gets to choose who and when he sh shares it with, God's great kindness sovereignly shown towards those who don't deserve it. On one hand, God shows grace to all the world through many common blessings experienced daily. But the grace he shows to believers is far more exceptional. How does God show his grace to us? Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And just a few verses later, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. These verses remind us that God has shown his grace by giving salvation to us, even though we did everything negatively possible to disqualify ourselves from it, and even though we did nothing positively to earn it. His grace serves as a continual reminder that we are utterly helpless and we continue to be helpless apart from God's provision. It's what enables us to enjoy and commit to peace and love. As one commentator put it, grace is the fountain of which peace is the stream. So how do we grow in our understanding, in our experience of God's grace, right? He's already poured it out infinitely on us. He can't give us any more of it. So how do we grow in our experiential understanding of it so that we can then in turn be gracious ourselves? You do it through the word of God. At the end of Peter's second letter, he commands believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growing in grace is connected with growing in the knowledge of Jesus. As we grow in our knowledge through the steady diet of the word, so we grow in grace. That's why Peter commands us in his first letter, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, the spiritual milk he's referring to is the living and abiding word of God. And when we consume it, we can taste and see the goodness and grace of of God. To grow in grace does not mean you mature and grow past the gospel, like the gospel is a primer and once you're done with it, you don't have to reflect on it anymore. To grow in the grace of God means you grow deeper in astonishment as your understanding of the gospel grows deeper. We will spend all eternity growing in astonishment about God's grace. That is a profound thing to think about. You will not be able to exhaust the attributes of God and your understanding of them throughout all eternity. Paul offers a qualifier to this benediction. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace is supplied to those who love the Lord with a love that's has the quality of incorruptibility. What does incorruptible mean? It's actually a word that Paul uses, only Paul uses in the, in the New Testament. And in the majority of the context he uses it, it refers to the glorified body that we will receive in heaven that is incorruptible, immortal, unending, undying, unfading. That's what it means. So in this context, incorruptible love simply means and refers to a permanent love, a genuine love that does not stop and does not end. And those who have tasted and seen God's grace through his word will never cease to love Jesus. I know you're sitting there thinking, there's a lot of times where I stop loving Jesus. Anytime I sin, I have stopped momentarily loving Jesus. But that's the key word, momentarily. You do not cease 
to love him for long. You may be like Peter and deny Jesus three times, but you return to Jesus because he is the only one who has the words of eternal life. We will never truly stop following and loving our Lord and Savior. To cease to love Jesus is to reject him as the Son of God. So as long as you haven't done that, then you have love incorruptible. If you want to experience more of the grace you have already been given, you spend time with Jesus. If you want the strength to show grace to other people, you spend time with Jesus through his word. Paul's conclusion at, this, at the end of Ephesians is no mere sign-off. It's a significant prayer that we would be encouraged in the battle in the spiritual warfare that is raging on every day in our lives, and that we would grow in our experience and understanding of peace, God's peace, peace with God, the peace of God, love with faith and grace. And when we grow in our understanding of that, we will also grow in our practice of it with each other. This has been Paul's prayer both in the beginning and the end of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 16 through 17, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul wants us to grow in wisdom and knowledge of our Savior, but not just in head knowledge, not just to know a bunch of facts of theology and so we can win a Bible trivia game. He wants us to have knowledge that transforms the way we live so that we can build each other up. He wants us to enjoy and use the gifts God has given us for building each other up. That's the main takeaway. The church itself is to be the very first place where the world can see God's peace, love, and grace on display based on how we treat one another. But we can't do it on our own. We need God's help. We need his gifts. So as we face the daily battle of spiritual warfare, we need each other, every member of the body of Christ, actively, proactively, intentionally engaged in building each other up so that we can persevere in faith. Your responsibility to the body of Christ, your involvement, your use of the spiritual gifts are essential to the building up and perseverance of other people. Those sitting next to you, across from you in this room, are dependent upon you obeying Jesus. That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. That's what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. That's what it looks like to love one another as Christ has loved us. This can only happen, though, as we grow in our understanding of the blessings God has given us. As we study his word, as we have a steady diet and intake of the spiritual milk that makes us grow into salvation, that is when we grow in our knowledge, understanding, and practice and this is the encouraging thing to leave, to leave off with. The fact that Paul is praying this benediction, we can take it to the bank that this will come to pass. Because anytime you pray a prayer that's aligned with the God's will, Jesus promises that he will answer it. Paul's prayer will come to pass for us as we pray it too. And we can be encouraged knowing that it will be answered 
as we love Jesus with an incorruptible love. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we marvel at how you have revealed yourself to us through your word, how you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, how you have lavished us with your love, with your mercy, with your peace, with your grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. But yet you loved us while we were your enemies. I pray that we would just help us this, this, this morning and going forth to abide in that knowledge, to abide and enjoy the blessings that you have given us, the gifts you have given us, so that we will be so consumed with them that we would then in turn pour out those blessings on one another and even on our enemies. Help us to be more like Christ. Help us to continue to persevere in our incorruptible love for Jesus. Help us to gaze upon his beauty and be consumed with his glory. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Please stand and join us in singing in Christ alone. alone who took on flesh 
I believe wholeheartedly that Newcastle Bible Church is a church full of peace, love with faith, and grace. But in the words of Paul from Philippians, we should abound all the more. Abound all the more in what we are already doing. Grow all. There's, there's infinite room to grow in our knowledge and experience of God's attributes and what he has done for us. So I encourage you, I exhort you to grow all the more in it so that you will grow all the more in expressing that peace and love and grace to others so that we can glorify God together and build each other up. But as we conclude, let us say the benediction from Ephesians for the last time, from Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.